There, you just did it again. All day, every day, you keep doing it over and over again. You're breathing in and out, breathing air. It keeps us alive. But when was the last time you thought about what exactly are you breathing? Salut, c'est John de Glasgow en Écosse et vous écoutez un épisode spécial des archives d'Akimbo. It turns out that air, while it's invisible, if you're lucky, isn't made of what most people think it's made of. 78% of the air we breathe is nitrogen. Nitrogen is basically the most boring of all gases. It's invisible, colorless, odorless, and it doesn't like to link up with anything. It's pretty inert. What does it mean to be 78%? Well, think about the 100-yard dash, the length of a football field. 78% means that the first 78 paces, almost all of it, is nitrogen, a gas that does basically nothing. Oxygen, the star of air, the one we think of when we're thinking about breathing, is only 21% of the 100 yards that make up air. We are incredibly sensitive to the amount of oxygen in the air that we are breathing. If you go a mile high to Boulder, Colorado, and try to run a mile, it's much more difficult. And yet, the amount of oxygen that high up goes from 21% to about 18%. Only three yards out of the hundred different. Okay, so why does this matter? It matters because after we go to oxygen, we have argon, which is a sister of nitrogen, also a boring gas, about 1% of all the air we breathe. And then, in fourth place, if we don't count water vapor, in fourth place is carbon dioxide, the one we've been talking about in the news for the last 20 years. Carbon dioxide, which I thought was a huge percentage of the air we breathe because of plants and stuff. Carbon dioxide is the equivalent of one inch of the 100 yards we're talking about. It's just 0.03% of air. We are incredibly sensitive to this. One inch out of 100 yards is enough to change the dynamics of the environment. Why does this matter? It matters for a couple reasons, and we need to talk about the sun. If it weren't for the sun, we'd all be dead. The sun radiates energy on the earth every single day. That the biggest difference between the earth and Mercury or Pluto is the fact that we are an appropriate distance from the sun, getting just the right amount of energy to be able to sustain life. And how do we do that? Well, the first thing that happens is the atmosphere intermediates between us and the sun. On the moon, it gets really, really hot and really, really cold because there is no atmosphere. But on Earth, the atmosphere slows down the heating and the cooling and enables us to live in relative comfort. 
The other thing the atmosphere does, though, is create a system. And the system works like this. Plants take that little tiny bit of carbon dioxide that is in the air, add to it the sun, and using photosynthesis, strip away the carbon from carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen. That oxygen is used by us to respirate, to breathe, and to keep us alive. We breathe out carbon dioxide, adding carbon from our system to the oxygen and putting it back into the air. And that's the reason I thought there was so much carbon dioxide to begin with, because human beings are busy breathing out carbon dioxide all the time. If you don't believe me, take a paper bag and breathe into it, I don't know, 30 times. Pretty soon you're going to faint because there's too much carbon dioxide and not enough oxygen. Okay, none of this is in dispute. All of this is clear and easily measured. This tiny little bit of carbon that's in the air has a fascinating effect on what happens to sunlight, to heat. And it's this. That little tiny bit of carbon creates a barrier that keeps the heat from escaping the Earth. Asteroids don't have this. The moon doesn't have this. They're hot when they're hot. They're cold when they're cold. But that barrier works like a blanket, like a greenhouse, keeping the heat in so that it doesn't escape into space. That last little bit, remember, we're talking about one inch out of a hundred yards, changes the way the heat interacts with our atmosphere. Also, beyond dispute. So here's what's been happening. For a million years, plants have been turning carbon dioxide into plants, into tree trunks, into ivy and kudzu and all the plants that we see around us. And over time, after a week or a year or a century, the plants die. And when they die, they go into the ground. Sometimes they decompose thus putting their carbon back into the air. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes they get layered, one layer on top of another, turning into sediment, turning into clay, turning into oil. One of the first cogent reports on how the greenhouse effect works was written by M.B. Glazer in 1982. He wrote... Atmospheric monitoring programs show the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has increased about 8% over the last 25 years and now stands at about 340 parts per million. I'll interject here that the Keeler curve now shows that it's well over 400, so it has grown even faster. Back to Glazer. This observed increase is believed to be the continuation of a trend which began in the middle of the last century with the start of the Industrial Revolution. Fossil fuel combustion and the clearing of virgin forests are believed to be the primary contributors. Jumping ahead to 1988, R.P. Jacobs and his team wrote, Man-made carbon dioxide 
released into and accumulated in the atmosphere, is believed to warm the Earth through the so-called greenhouse effect. The gas acts like the transparent walls of a greenhouse and traps heat in the atmosphere that would normally be radiated back into space. Mainly due to fossil fuel burning and deforestation, the atmospheric CO2 concentration has increased some 15% in the present century to a level of about 340 parts per million. Now, here's an interesting aside. M.B. Glazer was working at the time for Exxon, now called ExxonMobil, and R.P. Jacobs and his team worked at Shell. It is not in dispute that air is made up of the gases that I described. It is not in dispute that the amount of carbon in the air has gone up by a third since we started measuring it in 1960, a third. It is not in dispute that greenhouse gases make the world heat up. It is possible that greenhouse gases come from lots of places, volcanoes, the ocean respirating, changes in the way forests are grown. Doesn't matter. So creatures come and creatures go. Species become extinct and new species are started. But that is not much consolation to people who live now, who have children and grandchildren, to people who can see 50 years into the future. So back to R.P. Jacobs and his team at the Shell Oil Company. These changes could be larger than any that have occurred over the last 12,000 years. Such relatively fast and dramatic changes would impact on the human environment, future living standards, and food supplies, and could have major social, economic, and political consequences. This was written in 1988 at Shell Oil. So now we get to the human nature part of this story. It's 1988. Some of the best-funded, most informed, and smartest scientists working in the field, the ones who know the most about fossil fuels, have written nearly definitive reports long before there's a crisis in public, outlining to their bosses the problem to come. And what do their bosses do? The bosses at Shell, at Exxon, at many of the top 100 fossil fuel companies, they look at all the data and they realize that 50%, actually more than 50% of all of the carbon released by humans since the Industrial Revolution has been released by just 100 companies. They also see that the stock market, that investors, that people who are seeking profits will not be excited by a massive shift in their industry, that people don't go to work in that industry as leaders and they don't invest in that industry because they are seeking uncertain and rapid change. They do it because the story they tell themselves is about the utility of doing this industrial work of showing up to do what they did yesterday, but more efficiently and more profitably. So the leaders of these companies decide to make this a political issue because the rules of marketing a political issue are about tribal values, are about our posture 
regarding the status quo and who's up and who's down, who's winning and who's losing, what's changing and what's staying the same. By tapping into tribal values about things like government regulation, they are able to turn a scientific issue into a political one. And then it gets rolled out to the rest of humanity. People are not good at talking about the future. We're not good at thinking about dying. We have very little ability to imagine what the world was like 150 years ago. And we spend no time at all thinking about how the world is going to be in 150 years. We are capable of putting enormous amounts of effort into last-minute emergencies. We spend a vast portion of our healthcare budget keeping people alive in the last year or two of their lives, and almost none of our healthcare budget staying in shape, changing the diets of people so that they won't have a horrible last few years of life. Because we're humans, and because the culture, the marketing industrial complex, is rewarded for the short term. Social media has made it even worse, because now the short term has gone from what's happening on Friday to what's happening in six seconds. That listening to an entire podcast without checking your email along the way is considered a triumph. And so, Human nature shows up, that human nature that doesn't like percentages, that doesn't understand probability, that doesn't want to talk about how the world is going to be in 20 years, and add to it the instinct toward the political about who is going to win and who is going to lose, point out the fact that people in poor countries often live near the ocean, and that those people who have the smallest voice in this conversation are the ones who are going to be the most impacted. What you end up with is a perfect storm, irony intentional, a perfect storm of science and culture and industry all meeting in a way that makes it very difficult for our culture, our humanity, to react and respond appropriately. Because what is being asked is not, please recycle your plastic bags. Because that, for the people who like to do that, is fun and easy. It makes you feel good between 4.02 and 4.04 when you come home from the market. It's easy, but it's not really important. What's important is to understand that 100 companies are responsible for more than half of this shift. What's important to realize is that technological breakthroughs with sufficient research and development could dramatically change not just the parts per million of carbon in our atmosphere, but the quality of our lives. That if you've ever driven in an electric car, you know that not only is it an electric car, it's fun, it's quiet, it feels like the future. But that's a hard sell because our culture is organized around the idea that the easiest thing to sell, the easiest thing to talk about is how do we keep it the way it is? How do we avoid the uncertain leap into the future, salto mortale? And the second thing that's easy to do in our culture is to divide us 
is to help us argue with each other, to push the other away, to say, you are not on my team, you just said something I don't believe in, and go away. And so, we have a media system that profits from division, that the reason we have breaking news is because there are people whose job it is to make money from breaking news. So even if there isn't breaking news, they'll invent some because that crisis of the moment gets our attention, our attention makes them money, and then they can get more attention. But it's really hard to create breaking news about something that's going to happen in 20 years or 12 years or even five years. And so each of us is a participant in this cycle. This cycle where some people are going to show up and figure out a dynamic that gets a critical mass of energy behind it so that we can do something about this problem. Because if we don't, it's simply going to be the reality of our future. One where we will talk about nothing but the problem that has engulfed us. Because by then, all we will be able to do is use our dwindling resources to remediate the problem, to figure out how to build a dike, to figure out how to move uphill. And it's not going to be fun, and it's not going to be easy. So as someone who looks at the culture, as someone who thinks a lot about how ideas spread, here's a textbook example of the right idea not landing, not sticking. It's not global warming. Global is good. Warming is good. There are a lot of people who are in favor of both global and warming. Now, we have atmosphere cancer. Atmosphere, because it's scientific, it's measured, it's easy to test. And cancer, because it's a chronic degenerative disease, one that we cannot deny exists, but one that if we hurry, we can do something about. Not make it go away forever, but we can do something about it if we see it as an opportunity And if we build connection, if we build a narrative, if we push organizations to do not just the right thing, not just the urgent thing, but the thing that's actually productive. Because change is the fuel of capitalism. It's these disruptive changes, the ones the market leaders always don't want, that lead to the next breakthrough, to the next opportunity to the next chance to make things better by making better things. What we've learned in our increasingly marketed to, industrialized, consumer-driven culture around the world, what we've learned is that forward motion comes from things that make people feel good in the short run. That forward motion comes from when we can get behind something that connects us, that makes us feel alive, that opens the door to possibility, that we are not that good at long-term emergencies, but our culture is organized around the idea that when the right people show up and say, follow me with a plan toward a brighter future, more and more of us are willing to get on board if we can overcome our innate desire to argue about it, our innate desire to put off the inevitable death at the end of the road, and instead say, people like us do things like this. And what it means to be people like us is that we are going to be thoughtful about what is obvious and clear 
and what it means to be people like us to do something like this is that we've got to be in sync about what something like this is. Because politicizing things so that we can benefit 100 CEOs, I think we have a better opportunity than that. We have the opportunity to see what is actually happening and to open the door for the kind of innovation that's helped make things better all along. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. We do love to hear from you. And recently, the questions have been coming in more on point than ever before, and I appreciate it. If you've got a question you want to ask, visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button. We got a bunch of questions on the very same topic, so I picked just one of them. This one from a fellow Buffalonian. Besides learning so much from you, I feel an additional, though perhaps a rational, connection as I also grew up going to the Clearfield Library and eating bocce pizza, though to be honest, I was never a huge fan of that sauce. My question relates to something you've touched on in a number of ways and places, but still leaves me trying to better understand two seemingly contrasting ideas. To make something that is great, something unique, something that is really worth talking about, it would seem obvious that a person needs to put in the hard work to do it. Staying narrow but deep in a field, perhaps, at least initially really focusing on a craft until you are the one and only for whatever it is that you do. At the same time, it is said that how we do the small things is how we do the big things. Though I don't believe in making my bed each morning, I can see why some people waste the time each morning to do it. So the obvious conundrum then, then is we can invariably find ourselves sacrificing some attention to detail and, and some quality of what we do in other areas of our life so that we can focus on our craft. So my question in a nutshell is, do you think that how we do the small things is how we do the big things? How do we balance this? I would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks very much. The idea of wrestling with perfectionism, of the divergence between ship it, bring work to the world, and the dip, our need to create something remarkable, to be best in the world. The conflict is really clear, but we confuse it sometimes. First of all, I have never once said, just ship it. Because just do it, just ship it, that implies Go ahead, what the hell? Put it out there, doesn't matter. What I am talking about is merely ship it. There's a blog post on my blog tomorrow morning. It's not on my blog tomorrow morning because it's perfect. It's in my blog tomorrow morning because it's tomorrow morning. That if we commit, as Lauren Michaels pointed out with Saturday Night Live, if we commit to shipping at a given date and a given time, and know that we must ship our best available work at that moment, our best available work will get better. Because professionals ship on time, they ship on schedule. What it means to merely ship it is to drop the narrative, to stop holding ourselves back, not because it's not good enough, but because it's easier to hold the work back than to interact with the marketplace. The fabled Bob Dylan has recorded more than 50 albums. Most of them are below his average. Show me, show me. Come and blow you away. 
year of a who knows when. A few are the extraordinary ones. If he had waited for the extraordinary albums, they never would have arrived. Merely ship it means that we are on schedule, that we are on track without the narrative to bring our work to the world. So then, how do I answer your problem? Well, here's the question. How long does it take to write a novel? I'll bet, on average, nine months. So it's nine months to write a novel. How long does it take to type a novel? If someone hands you a novel and you are a trained typist, how long to type it? At the most, four days. So what's the difference between four days of typing and nine months of writing? The difference is you're spending the extra eight and a half months noodling about thinking, exploring dead ends, trying things out that don't work. And most of the time, you're stuck. You're trapped. You're worried that it's not good enough. Earl Stanley Gardner was one of the greatest novelists of all time in terms of books sold. He sold hundreds of millions of Perry Mason novels. No one will argue that the Perry Mason novels are the greatest novels ever written. But he wrote a Perry Mason novel in 20 days. dictated it to his secretary. And the first draft is the draft that people read. Was he a genius? No, not at all. He just wasn't hung up on the what-ifs, on the holding back part. So my argument is that with focus, we can put effort into a field. We can show up in that field very specifically for the smallest viable audience, again and again with generosity, with vision, and then do it again and do it again and get better at it by merely shipping, by getting to the point where doing our work feels a lot more like typing, bringing it to the world without a lot of care or guilt or remorse. Here, I made this. In this moment, this is my best version of myself. Dropping the narrative, showing up to turn on lights for other people and to do our work the way professionals do. I know it's not easy. It might take 10 years, 20 years, 30 years to become the best heart surgeon in the world. But once you are the best heart surgeon in the world, with a focus on a particular illness in a particular kind of patient in a particular region of the country, there's not a lot of narrative left. You know what you're doing. And the reason you know what you're doing is you have merely shipped the work. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.